Okay, everybody, thank you for joining us. Episode number 14 of the Roses Render podcast. I am your uh, host, Jimmy Hackett. With me, as always, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. And uh, joining us today is a very special guest, Phil Lacovara. Phil Lacovara is a Tucson uh, uh, engineer, physicist, businessman, and also author. And he'll be here talking about, about us today, primarily with his uh, work, False Flags. But before talking about False Flags, Phil, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about another book that you wrote that I think has a cool backstory to it. Uh, that would be The Mariner and the Monk. So uh, thank you for joining us and uh, take it away. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Jimmy and Joe. Um, I finished uh, False Flags in uh, the end of 2018. And as I was in the process of uh, getting it published, I came upon another story that I felt was so compelling and in some ways so time dependent that I needed to jump on it. Uh, and that is the story of an event in, uh, that centers around an event in the Korean War when a, a merchant marine ship called the SS Meredith Victory, commanded by a man named uh, Leonard P. LaRue, rescued 14,000 Korean civilians from Hungnam in what is today North Korea uh, in December of 1950. So if you remember, that's fairly early in the war. And it followed a very famous event that people who know about Korea have followed called the Chosun Reservoir Campaign, when the Marines very famously fought their way down from a, a, a trap set by the Chinese who entered the war at that, at that point and mm. uh, managed to come out with their, most of their, the vast majority of their Marines and, and almost all their equipment. But at the same time that 100,000 soldiers and Marines were rescued, another 100,000 Korean civilians were rescued as well. The man that this book centers on um, served in the Merchant Marine through uh, the Depression, World War II, and then Korea. And then after Korea, even as he was being uh, celebrated in the press for this remarkable accomplishment of 14,000 civilians, he left the Merchant Marine and became a Benedictine monk. And he spent mm -hmm. the, the second half of his life, instead of sailing the seven seas, um, living on a you know, a few hundred acre monastery grounds in uh, rural New Jersey. And his story is so remarkable, people still tell it. I interviewed the, some of his officers who are in their 90s and are still telling the story. And uh, it, it's such a compelling story. And his life was so filled with virtue that the Bishop of the Diocese of Patterson, Bishop uh, Saratelli, named him a servant of God and started him on the path to sainthood. Now, that's a long path. Who knows if he'll ever get there? But I thought that was just such a remarkable story that before these wonderful men whom I had gotten to know passed on to their reward, I wanted to tell the story. So that took up the entirety of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you probably had a more eventful 2020 than most. And 2020, that's really saying something, I would say. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, COVID's been terrible for everybody. It was a great time to write. Okay. I couldn't travel. I had a lot of, right. a lot of trips planned and and, uh, you know, stuck at home was a great time to write. And I think you'll find in the, in the publishing industry, it has been a banner year for independent authors and publishers because so many people have been working from home one way or the other. That is definitely a, a topic that I think we do want to touch on a little bit later on in the podcast is this transition from, you know, kind of your life before writing into mm -hmm. becoming a writer. And obviously along with that too, just doing, the research, and I would imagine that in a book like *The Mariner and the Monk*, the research is maybe 
the most fun part because you're actually are, are learning the story and you're seeing that in life there actually are these larger than life heroes that exist among us and it, it must be this surreal experience of having you know this saint you know almost literally a saint that right. really existed and did all, all of these things i mean what is what is that experience like you know uncovering the history through interviews and the, the research it, process it, it, well it was as you say it was fascinating and thrilling. I, I found out about this story in February of 2019. I was reading a, a magazine that I get every month called Naval Institute Proceedings. It's published by the U.S. Naval Institute in Annapolis, Maryland. Yeah. I and get that one too, actually. No, do you get Proceedings? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's also somewhat obscure. Right, right. Um, and, um, and there was a letter to the editor uh, commenting on a, a story that had run in December, the previous December, so December of 2018 about an event that occurred in, in December 1950 in Korea. And this fellow wrote, you know, an even more, you know, I enjoyed this article that you had in December, but an even more remarkable event occurred in December 1950, the rescue of 14,000, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And it was signed by a fellow who, by the magic of Google, I was able to find, um, interestingly, he, he lives in New Jersey, uh, New York, but I actually found his, his email address through a website in, uh, I think it was Croatia. Okay, there you go, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I, I opened up a dialogue with him and he was very receptive and we started talking and communicating by email. And I went and interviewed him in September of 2018 at his home in Bronxville, New York, and decided, and he showed me some of his files and pictures that he had from the rescue. And I decided to jump on it with both feet. And uh, I spent December, most of December, in fact, I missed every Christmas party that my wife and I would have otherwise gone to. Right. Uh, I spent December of 2018. Again, thankfully, uh, it wasn't 2020. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, 2019. Uh, right. Researching, researching uh, at various archives. So I went to Philadelphia first, where this man was from. Um, went to a couple of archives, the National Archives and the Archives of the Independence, uh, Independence um, Seaport Museum and then spent a week at the National Archives. Wow. And I have to tell you, that kind of thing is addictive. Oh, sure. You know, when you, when you go to this massive building, I, I, the, a few years ago, the National Archives or the National Archives and Records Administration, NARA, built, thanks to a very large, you know, multi-billion dollar congressional appropriation, uh, built a brand new headquarters. And it's kind of like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, when at the very end, the Ark is being pushed, you know, into this enormous government warehouse. Well, this is the government warehouse that you right. visualize in that. Um, and for, for five, you know, eight to five working days, I requested materials. I've done, done some research beforehand to know what I wanted. But the most interesting thing is, you know, you go into this thinking that there's going to be some magic document that is going to answer all the questions. And it's never that way. Right, right. What you find instead is 10 other documents that give you a little piece that you didn't even know existed. And that was, that was really interesting to go through that process. So I finished that in December. And then in the beginning of 2020, I started writing. And wrote all the way through, finished it by um, August, I guess, of 2020. Sent it off to a, a Naval Institute Press. Uh, because I thought they would be the right people to publish it. Okay. And they, they were very nice. They reviewed it and they reviewed it and they reviewed it and they reviewed it. 
And I was rather desperate to get it done by the end of 2020, because again, these, these men who are survivors whom I'd interviewed, I've talked to three of them, are all in their 90s. And this year being the 70th anniversary, I wanted to get this book out on the 70th anniversary. Well, after about uh, six or eight weeks of waiting, I, I corresponded with the acquisitions editor, who's very nice, and said, well, you know, we're still reviewing it, but you should know that our production cycle is 14 months. Mm. So that would not be consistent with getting it done in right. December of 2020. So I said, well, thank you very much. I'm going to get it edited and I'm going to publish it. And that's what I ended up doing and was able to get it officially out right before the anniversary, the 70th anniversary. Very good. Well, that's, I, I, I just like the, uh, kind of like what you're talking about with the, the research. And that's obviously a, a trait you have as a writer that obviously carries over to false flags and the amount of detail that you put into your, into your writing. And so I want to, I want to use that. First of all, be, before we transition to false flags, where can people find Mariner and the Monk? Where can they buy it? What formats can they buy it in? Uh, it it's available in uh, Kindle as well as paperback and hardcover uh, from Amazon right now. Great. Uh, and uh, so just if you go search the Mariner and the Monk or search my name, Philip Lacavara, it'll, it'll come up. Um, as you know, as, as you know, when you, when you first start selling something in any kind of search engine, it may take a while for it to be the first, the first uh, thing that's up there, but it'll be recognizable uh, when it comes up because you'll see on the cover of the, of the book is a photograph of hundreds of, of Korean refugees, including some beautiful children looking up with big smiles at the camera. And, and I have seen the cover and you definitely recognize it right away. And uh, for our listeners, we'll make sure we put links for all these books in the, uh, on our website and on our uh, video as well. So you'll be able to find them and, and it won't be any problem at all. Uh, Joe, did you want to add anything uh, from Mariner and the Monk or do you want to? Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll definitely make sure to click through those links a few times and see if we can boost it up in the algorithm <laughs> yeah. a bit. Very good, very good. Well, so let's 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 use that idea about about research and inspiration to talk about false flags. So, for the Mariner and the Monk, it was obviously that this larger than life, real story, you know, true event. False flags obviously is is a fictional work. What what event or a series of events led you to want to write uh, what is essentially you know a a, a crime FBI type spy thriller? What was the drive to that genre. And then if you could work us through some of the background that you did to prepare for that book as well. Well, the, uh, the, the basic, I don't want to spoil it for potential readers, but the, yeah. the, 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 the kind of central event um, in the story, the kind of central terrorist event is something I had been thinking about for years. I realized the, the particular vulnerability that was represented that was exploited by the terrorists in this event. And so that was probably a decade or more in the making. And long before I ever thought I was going to write about it. Uh, I uh, decided in, I guess in, in 2018, 2017, in that time frame, that the next phase of my life after, you know, having sold one business and, and being in the process of winding down another one, that, that I needed to find a, a trade, you know, something that would keep me busy, you know, keep me engaged and maybe add some value one way or the other. And because uh, my wife and I like to travel uh, and um, we do have a second home, it was, it was attractive to do something like writing. I can't paint, 
<laughs> I, can't, I can't sing. I can't compose music. I can't really play an instrument. So if I want to be creative, right? You know, ultimately, I wish I were a painter. But you know, like uh, Winston Churchill in his second or third career, he right. became a painter. Not a very good painter, but he was a painter. I can't well, also, also George Bush, but yeah. And George Bush, that's right. Absolutely. Um, you know, I can't even draw a straight line. So painting was not going to be my thing. Um, but writing I mean, is something that we all do at some level, even if it's in, in um, you know, Twitter length. Um, but uh, it was something that, that gave me the opportunity to, to get back to something I really hadn't done since high school. So back in the 70s was really the last time I did any creative writing, you know, besides essays in college or proposals or technical reports in, in, in career. So I had, I had the, the, pick, the pieces of the story, um, kind of the central piece. So that's not, you say to yourself, okay, so that's the middle. What's the beginning and what's the end? And the beginning I decided to, to base in the Southwest because that's where I live. And there's, a, there's kind of a, a, an axiom about writing, write what you know. Well, I didn't really have any firsthand knowledge of anything in this, in this thing I wrote, aside from some visits to some of the locations, including the places in Russia, some of the places in Russia. But uh, I decided that, that it would add a little color to it to start it in the Southwest, something which looks, an event which looks con completely unrelated to what follows and then see if I could weave these two unrelated events together in a way which was somewhat coherent. Um, and you know, the rest was taking things I knew from a 30 year career, 30, yeah, I guess 30 year, 30 plus year career in, in doing research for the Navy, uh, as well as what I could glean from the internet and from books about what would be different scenarios under which different things would evolve. And that's kind of how it all came together. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I noticed while reading through False Flags was how you were able to speak with such detail and authority on just a wide range of different subjects from Mexican food to cryptocurrency, <laughs> intelligence departments, geography, uh, Tucson bar scene, um, <laughs> Russian Matryoshka dolls, and uh, even pressure vessels. It, you know, it seems like everything was spoken of properly and clearly and just representative a wide breadth of knowledge, it felt like. Well, I appreciate that. I, I have to say the Tucson bar scene is the part I actually know the least about. But, oh. <laughs> but no, I, I was, you know, I, I um, the fellow who wrote the review on the back is a, a man I, I met through mutual friends who is in fact a retired FBI agent, even though he has a, a name, which if, if it hadn't been invented, it hadn't been real, would be a great name for a character, Matt Tank, great guy. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and, uh, and interestingly, he knew, he knew some of the, some of the people that I base some of the characters on, right. um, you know, we kind of, our, our circles have kind of intersected very, very peripherally. And the, the, the most frightening moment was when I asked him after I'd given him the manuscript to read, you know, I didn't ask him, I didn't know him when I wrote the thing, mm -hmm. I, I gave it to him afterwards. And I said, well, what do you think? Is it realistic? He said, it's spot on. Uh -huh. And that was, that was gratifying because right. what, I, what I always hate, I, my, my wife, and many of my siblings hate to watch movies with me if they have any technology in them, because I always say, oh, that wouldn't happen. That's right. ridiculous. You know, that's not, I'm one of those spoiler guys who, who always, you know, wants to correct the screenwriter yeah. uh, in their, in their premise. And uh, it, it's, I hate, I would hate to be in that position. That really gets to 
what you're what you're alluding to, Joe. I try to be very, without being pedantic, I try to be accurate because I hate it when I read something and it doesn't ring true. Yeah, it, it felt very credible. And it also felt credible. You were talking about the central piece or the, the central crux of the story uh, was about a certain piece of equipment that mm-hmm. that failed and isn't very replaceable. That's something that I had been actually researching and heard about prior to reading that. And this was the first kind of mainstream substance that I saw in in real life. So it was cool to see that. Well, my, my daughter said to me, Daddy, why are you writing about this? It'll give the terrorists an idea. And I said, honey, I think yeah. know. <laughs> the people who shouldn't know are the ones who always know, right? Yeah. Exactly right. Well, and I, I know one uh, technology that also featured prominently in the work as well are, are drones. And so I'm just curious if that was something that you had been thinking about. I mean, drones have been a topic of conversation for a decade, it seems like. And uh it seems like a technology that would just be very hard to control, even if you wanted to. And so one of the things as I was reading your book is I was thinking, well, my God, anybody with a credit card can go to Target and buy a drone. I mean, you could do it today almost. I mean, not a lot's holding you back. And so I'm just, I'm just wondering if, as you were writing this, did you feel yourself becoming nervous of like, like this actually really could happen? <laughs> well, I, I, I have to say, There have been a number of times in my life when I had an idea for an invention and I thought, boy, this would really be a great invention. And I found out that somebody invented it. Right. And so much for that. Um, In the case of the drones, uh, I had that idea just because I thought about what you could do with the drone. Right. Um, And it was it was while I was writing the book that I came across came across something that I actually alluded to in the story as I was writing it about the use of drones to carry um, uh, explosives and other payloads uh, in uh, Mexico and Central America. And so, you know, it was, it was, uh, I hate to say ripped from the headlines, but as I was writing it, I was saying to myself, here's a piece that's almost ripped from the headlines because it's, it's, it's not just realistic, it's real. Right. Uh, Fortunately, not very real, not very common, but, um, you know, these, these types of things, um, you know, somebody of, of, uh, of bad will can always adapt something that yeah. uh, has, a, has a positive purpose and make it negative. Well, just a few months ago, there were some drones spotted by the Palo Verde nuclear plant. I mean, oh, I really? remember that. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm nothing obviously came of it, but it was something to that effect. And, mm-hmm. you know, people were saying, uh, you know, what, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing here? Well, maybe the next story will have a jetpack guy over LA or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, Phil, you might, you might know the answer to this. Um, with respect to drones, do they, are they picked up by most radar systems or can they fly under the radar? Are they large enough? Oh, I think I think most of the well, it's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously, something big it doesn't have low observability features could probably be picked up. Something very small, I don't think it would show up. For example, on aircraft's weather radar, uh, I think that the the easiest way to pick them up these days is if they have a uh, transmitter on them, you know, for a downlink. Then mm-hmm. you know the, you can use a, a receiver to to uh, at least know that they're there and possibly even locate them. But uh, I, I think the small ones are probably fairly hard to find on radar. Um, That's a scary thought. Wrong, but yeah, yeah. Because uh, they're not just not that big. And, you know, at least, you know, aircraft radar won't pick it up. Weather radar is not that sensitive. It's not set up for that. Okay. Uh, uh, perhaps a military radar. I don't know. 
I mean, I'm sure some would, particularly if it's close enough, but I don't know. Okay, and then uh, switching gears, I did have a more specific question or general question on your writing process. Do you have any typical practices, like daily practices that you do for writing, ways of increasing your writing skills, or is it more just a result of your career? Have you had enough practice within that time? Well, you can never practice too much. Um, yeah. I, I found, in fact, I, and I don't know if, if, if you sense this as you, as you read the book, one of my sons said to me, your style changed over the course of the book, because this is the first time I'd written, first time I'd ever written 80,000 words and at least maybe since my doctoral thesis. But it was the first time I'd sat down to try and write something creative from one end to the other. Uh, and I don't know, did you, did you detect that? Do you get a sense of that or did it not really come through to you? You know, now that you mention it, it did, it did kind of feel a little bit different from the beginning to the end. Um, I, I thought it was for design, to be honest, but. Well, good, I, I, and I, that must've been the reason. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> To me, I, uh, I felt like the, the uh, pacing picked up at the end. And I thought yeah. maybe that was deliberate on yeah. your part to kind of have this sense of momentum, you know, carrying well, well, through well. the end. Yeah. And, that, and that part was intentional. But, yeah, you know, no, and, and that came across very clearly, I thought. Yeah. Joe, you know, you're asking a good question. And, and that goes along with the question of, did you know how it was going to end when you started it? And the answer, of course, was no. I shouldn't say of course. The answer was no. Okay. I kind of knew where I wanted to get to, but I had no idea what the ending was going to be. Um, in terms of the craft of writing, again, I am, as a creative writer, very much a neophyte. Uh, like I said, I haven't written anything creative since I was in high school. And uh, what I realized, uh, I, I had the, 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 the great fortune of one summer, I guess this would have been 2017, 2017 or 2018, of, of uh, meeting uh, a very successful writer uh, who writes in France and has a series, he's probably got 30 books now about a particular French detective. And we were kind of, I was telling him I was interested in becoming a writer and he was telling me about a few of his tricks. He was a, by training was a journalist. And so he could, he could write, as he said, he could write in a foxhole, he could write anywhere. He didn't have a specific way that he wrote. But his point was, I think very important. It, it's that, you know, as long as you write a little bit every day, you'll get it done. And if you write a lot every day, you know, if you write a thousand words every day, you have a novel done in a month, in three months. And if you look at what he does every year, you know, and, and, and professional, that's what professional writers do. They have a system. They may, if they're, if they're successful enough or, or big enough, they may actually have researchers who do their legwork for them mm -hmm. so that they're actually going through and, and doing the writing. But they, you know, in three months, they have the book done. And then the rest of the time is promotion and coming up with what the next one's going to be. In my case, I was, when I, I, the first thing I did is figure out how long it needed to be to be commercial. Because I really had no idea. Because none of us, we don't usually think of a book in terms of words. We think of it in terms of pages. Yep. But the number of pages depends on how big the type is. You know, all, all the different typographical things. The, the chapter sizes. Chapter sizes, right, right, right. Uh, so... The answer was kind of 70 to 100,000 words is where you want your first novel to be. If it's too long, no one's ever gonna take the chance on it. And if it's too short, it's a short story. It's not a novel, it doesn't stand alone. So that was kind of the target I had. And as I, you know, you think of that, that's a, that's a pretty big number. You know, if you write, if you write 100 words a day, it's gonna take you a long time. 
fortunately, I figured if I could write a couple of hundred words a day and then not get stressed about whether I wrote 201 day or 500 or whatever, then it would work. And then the process was to write every day. And it didn't matter how much, but it had to be something. And getting in that discipline is the most important thing. Um, you know, it's the oft quoted proverb, the longest Chinese proverb, the longest journey begins with a single step is very true. And it's very true in writing. Um, so that, that was basically what I did. I had some days where I wrote a thousand or 2000 words. I was just cranking. And then other days where it was just a few hundred and in between was the combination of clearing your head and then thinking about, okay, where do I go with this? And now I'm trying to think of whether I wrote every section in order. And I think I did more or less. I might've gone back and done, I mean, you always do revisions. And if you have a good editor, which I did, she pointed out a couple of things that the reader, you know, it, it, as you know, you get inside of something and you miss all the mistakes. All right. that, that, a, that a normal ordinary person would pick this, oh, this is terrible. You, you know, I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. Who's, who's talking now? <laughs> my editor, for example, pointed out in, in one scene where it's, it takes place in the Oval Office or in the, in the Situation Room or somewhere in the White House, um, I don't know who's speaking right here. Hmm. Because you say this, you say this, you say this, but who's speaking? So you need to give them names. So that's why the characters in there had names. That's a really um, funny. Uh, some yeah. of the names that they basically correspond to people in a soon-to-be departing administration. Right. <laughs> so I, I just use some of the traits of the personality, but uh, yes. Yeah. That was so. One thing I was going to ask, and I so I know you were saying you, you didn't quite know how it would it would end, but did you have a, a a story or an outline in place before you began writing, or did you just have this character in mind of the FBI agent, and you were like, let me just see where this guy goes. I mean, how much um, of, of the, of the storyline did you have in place before you began putting the, the plot into, in, into place? Well, I had a very, very, uh, coarsest arc of the story. Okay. Which, which, you know, you can kind of, if you know, having read the book, you can kind of see where it goes, but none of the details were there. I, I knew who, and interestingly, now that you've read it, you know, that the main character kind of disappears through the second half of the book. And that was not intentional, but that's the way the story went. Right. And that's, that's one of the things I didn't know this before I started to write is that the story takes on a life of its own. You know, you can't force it to do something that's not natural. Right. You have to kind of go where it leads you. And, and that's what happened. I, th I realized as I was going through, you know what? Eric doesn't really have a role in this part of the story. It's this, the, the whole thing has grown beyond him. Yeah. And now it's these people over here who are important and who have to be the features. So that was not the least bit intentional. I thought he was going to just go cranking all the way through this, but that shows you how little I knew when I started, you know, how little of the second half of the story I knew I didn't, it's just right. kind of where it led. So it's, it's almost as if the story wrote itself in a sense from that in, perspective. In, in, a, in a ways, I mean, it really does. It's not quite like a Ouija board, but it does, you know, you have to follow it where, where it goes. And, yeah. and I, again, not to, not to aggrandize myself in the, in the least as a writer, but I, now that I've done that, I've heard other people, other people who write say the same thing, which is that the character leads you or the story leads you where it needs to go. Uh, yeah. I, I can't imagine how I would have inserted him 
uh, it would have been a different story, basically, if I had inserted him, you know, there's that little coda at the end. Right. Which I felt almost gratuitous, but I felt like I had to, I had to put a bow right. on it. Exactly right. Yeah. And it also opens up possibilities for some, for, you know, follow-on stories. Right. But, but the fact that he kind of disappears the second half of the book, you know, some of the people who read it early, you know, the, the first manuscripts, they were a little bit taken aback by that. Oh, interesting. That's your, they said, that's your main character. Right. And yet, as you read the story, he isn't, he isn't. Because right. there are some other characters, particularly the one in Moscow, who I think is a very interesting character. Mm-hmm. And eventually I want to explore what happens with her. So yeah. um, I wanted, I wanted... Some, other, some other people in that country. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. It's, it's good stuff that goes on there. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting when you were talking about writing as a system. And I think that's really important because I know that Jimmy and I have been learning recently the importance of systems over goals and how that if you can develop a system into your routine, it's much more likely that it will happen every day and that you'll get results from it. Um, so did you link your writing with another habit? Like maybe first thing when you wake up, you drink a cup of coffee, you start working or what would you write at the same time every day? Would it be different? Again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not at that level of discipline or rigor. I, I almost always write in the morning because that's when I'm fresher. I, yeah. I just find I'm, I'm a morning person. Um, oh, you're a morning person. Yeah. All right, buddy. That was Phil Lockevara joining us. <laughs> <signing> <laughs> <up>. <laughs> um, and so I, I find it, it's, it's a lot, was a lot like that. I usually get up before my wife and, and, and that first time in the morning, at least in the wintertime before the sun gets up, it's hard to get up in Tucson before the sun gets up in the sure. summertime, but you know, that, that, that first cup of coffee and then sitting down and I have a particular, I mean, I wrote, I wrote parts of it other places, but I have an office, home office that's very comfortable. It has surrounded with books and, and memorabilia. And so it's a very, a very comfortable space. And even though there's a lot of things which could be distractions, they're not when I sit down to write. Mm. So it really is that level of routine if I could do it. Now, we, we took some trips in the, in the midst of, of the writing of false flags and I was not as, as religious or diligent as I should have been in terms of writing, but that's what vacations are for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it, it is that, that's my, my preference is to get up right in the morning. And then part of the nice thing about that is that I'm not feeling guilty all day that I haven't <laughs> done it yet. Right. Is, if I call this my work, right? you know, I'm, I'm, of, I'm of that ilk that says you get your work out of the way first, then you can play. Well, right. that way, if I, you know, a lot of days I, you know, I'm done, I was done by, you know, nine, 10 o'clock, you know, the rest of the day was, was free for whatever. So that, that's kind of my system, such as it is. Well, let me ask you this, and this is a question that is kind of a, a niche question, but I know you were talking about, you know, writing in a, in a home office. I, I'm just curious, you know, maybe this is a silly question, but what role did did pencil and paper or pen and paper play with you writing this book? And the reason I ask is because you have a lot of things that would require you to be able to visualize and you have a lot of detail that involves a lot of spatial, you know, kind of uh, a language to understand what's happening. I would imagine you'd have to write that out to keep it straight in your head. And I'm just curious as, as a writer, I'm assuming you're using a computer for the typing, of course, but mm-hmm. what, what role are you, are you doing with, with, with pen and paper in the office to help make the story consistent and readable to the, to the, to the uh, audience? Well, I, I would use pen and paper if I could read my own handwriting. <laughs> but my handwriting is so illegible, even I can't read it much of the time. 
Um, it's just the level of uh, encryption, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even to the encrypted. Um, what, what I would do, I have, I have a laptop. Uh, I use a, a MacBook Air uh, for all the writing. Okay. And then I have a, I have a desktop, uh, another Mac, that I would use for, for uh, kind of fact finding, or I would maintain, for example, I maintained a, a, a spreadsheet to kind of organize some things, oh. organize dates, for example. Hmm. So I didn't get, uh, you know. Christopher Nolan, you know, time traveling going well, exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. Right. You, you don't, again, you don't want to read this and say, wait a minute. <laughs> right. These, these dates don't work out. Um, so what I would do is I have um, on my desktop, I've actually got two monitors. So I can display a lot of, a lot of information at once if I need to. And so for example, maps, maps are very important. So, uh, and Google, I mean, even Google Earth, I mean, I, I had, one of the reasons part of this takes place in Russia is because I had been to Russia. And so there are things, there are places in there that are in the book that I, I had been to physically, but there are other places that using Google Maps and Google Earth and using Street View, for goodness sake, you can actually look and see what something looks like in a country oh. you've never been to. And that's that's an amazing, absolutely right. amazing thing. Right. And, and so about the extent of my uh, pencil and paper was making some notes on things that I printed out of the from the computer. But I I can't uh, I can't do much, unfortunately, with the, with my handwriting. Right. 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 And I can't draw a straight line, so I can't draw. Exactly right. That was the first. Yeah, that's a very good point. Oh, I, I had another question about about the stylistic choices and how, how do you make determinations on what person you're going to write the book from, whether it's like first person, second person, third person, and as well as other things like like imagery. Like I noticed, especially in the beginning of the book, there was a lot of a lot of imagery that uh, I think added a lot to it. And was that something that was a deliberate effort on your part to add in those types of things? Or was that more of how just the story unfolded in your mind? You know, that's an interesting question. I guess it never occurred to me to write it in the first person um, or to write. I mean, I think it's, I think it's very difficult to write in the second person because you're always yeah. having a dialogue. Um, in, the, in the first person, putting myself in that position, one of the reasons I wouldn't want to do that is because, again, I, I didn't know what the character, you know, what was Eric actually going to do? You know, and he does have a, you know, romantic interlude or so. And I'm really not comfortable writing that. <laughs> <laughs> from the first person point of view. Right. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want the flack from my spouse over. Uh... Right. <laughs> so it, it's, um, it, it's much easier to write. I think it's much easier to write the third person uh, because you're the observer and everything else is happening, you know. And you have, you have the God's eye view because, you know, you know everything that's going on because you're making it happen. Right. Uh, so I, it's an interesting question. I, I wonder, well, it would have been a different book. It would have been hard. Well, for one thing, it would have been hard to do it in any person but third person because there's so many characters. True. And so we would, would have had to change voices and that would have been kind of tough. So it, I'll just say as a, as a novice, it was a lot easier to write for third person. As a, as a novice married man, it was much easier to write in a, in a, third, person, <laughs> in a, in a third person. Well, let me, building off of that, the, the style of choices too, back to the kind of the beginning, the style of choice of, of accuracy and, and research. And my, my, one of the things I was wondering as you're writing this book is what, 
and maybe responsibility is a strong word, but what responsibility did you feel to get some of the facts right since you were talking about a subject that obviously people think about, which is, you know, terrorism, international relationships, mm -hmm. et cetera. You know, in, in a way you're kind of saying, you know, you're, you're painting a picture of the world. And I'm just curious, you know, what, what role you felt you needed to make sure that that was being fair and, and sense to people that were involved and, and kind of getting the, the details right to avoid giving somebody, uh, you know, an, an overly simplistic view, but at the same time wanting it to be interesting and to be a, a thriller. What's that balance like from the research point of view and then also from the writing point of view? Well, again, you know, it, it's, it, you know, as, as a nerd, I, I want to have the details because I want to know the details. That's sure. the first part. Yeah. And so that's the, again, like the, like the research on, on the Mariner and the Monk, learning these things is, you know, to somebody who likes to learn things and likes to know how things work is very pleasurable. It's very enjoyable. Um, so there's that element of it. Uh, I, I felt, like I said earlier, I feel compelled not to let the reader down yeah. by, you know, creating, um, you know, the deus ex machina, you know, this magic thing that suddenly solves all the problems. Um, and in, in fact, there are some very popular uh, kind of adventure writers that, that I, I won't name whose books I won't read because their, their technology is so unrealistic and so fantastic. And it makes their job easier right? because because it, it solves all the problems. Right, right. And, and the readers love them and they sell thousands or millions of books and that's great, God bless them. But that's not me. And I, I couldn't, unless I'm writing fantasy, which I don't really write or haven't written, I don't really have too much of an interest in it. I'm not George R.R. Martin. You right. know, I, I can't create a whole, a whole world. Right. Um, and, you know, so if I'm going to write about contemporary events in the real world, then I feel like I have to be as accurate as possible. And I'm fortunate that for a lot of these things, because I have a technical background, right. it's kind of easy to, to parse it. And the, the, the thing I have to wrestle with is, is being informative without being pedantic, without overwhelming the, the reader with detail, which makes it now a textbook instead of, instead of an adventure. Hopefully not a how-to manual, but no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, right, right. Yeah, don't want to tell the bad guys. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, so Phil, what, what type of books do you read for fun or in your spare time? Well, I have to confess, uh, I, uh, when I'm writing, it's very hard to read, hmm. you know, because I feel like it, I don't want my mind to go in a direction, some, you know, in, in hmm. that part of my mind to go in another direction. So... Um, I used to read, particularly when I used to travel for business a lot, I would never, almost never, 99% never work on the plane. It was my kind of my time. And I would read, you know, I did a lot of, of transcontinental travel, travel back and forth to DC, and then a lot of international travel. And I loved that time. I, even back in the day, back in the day, of course, we didn't have entertainment, except on... <laughs> You know, the big screen. Now, you guys don't remember this, but it used to be the entertainment on an airplane, if you had it, was one big screen on the front of the cabin. Right. right. Watching the same movie. Uh, but I, um, I used to read a lot of, um, a lot of fiction. Um, I uh, used to read a lot of W.E.B. Griffin. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. We had a series mm -hmm. about uh, some fictional but realistic um, military men starting kind of starting World War II and then working their way all the way through Vietnam. And then I, I did read some Tom Clancy, although Tom Clancy to me, after a while, it seemed like he, he was all about the technology and all about the, 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 the overall picture and was, didn't really develop the characters. The, the, the author that I read that convinced me to become a writer is Elmore Leonard. And I love Elmore Leonard's, and even to, uh, today, I, mean, I, read, I read Elmore Leonard. Um, what I love about Elmore Leonard is that he, and he tells an interesting story, but he draws the characters so vividly and their dialogue is so real. You know, if you read Elmore Leonard or you watch a movie like uh, probably the best movie ever made from one of his books is Get Shorty. I don't know if you remember that with John Travolta, Gene Hackman, Rene Russo. I mean, fabulous cast, Delroy Linda. Fabulous cast, fabulous movie. Probably watched it 20 times and I enjoy it every single time. There you go. It's, it's just the characters are so well drawn and the dialogue is so good. You know, what, what makes good dialogue? Heart, pardon? What makes good dialogue? Um, well, I think what makes good dialogue, and in fact, when I started to write, I was worried that it was going to be hard to write dialogue. And it actually turned out to be easier than I thought. Much yeah, it, was, it was very smooth. It was that I, Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, before I answer your question, I'll, I'll tell you one of my daughter's um, friends commented when I was talking about this. She had actually, before she became an engineer, had wanted to become a, uh, a writer and actually taken a lot of writing classes in, in school before she decided she wasn't going to make any money at it. And she said to me, there's some significant age difference between her and, and myself. And she said, well, you, you find it easy to write dialogue because you've been listening to people speak your whole life. <laughs> and, and her point was, if I were 20 years old writing dialogue, it might be a lot more difficult. I think she was right. I mean, I think it, it was surprisingly easy. But what makes good dialogue? Well, I think, I think the thing about good dialogue is... First of all, what they're saying has to propel the story in some way or another. Either you're developing the character or you're enlightening the reader without hitting them over the head with it. I mean, I always hate when, again, when, when you're, you're in a situation and you're wondering what's going on and all of a sudden, right. like, a, like, a, like in the old, in the old uh, silent movies when you're watching <laughs> the faces moving and everybody's doing it, and all of a sudden, oh, that's what it is. Right, right. Um, or like the James Bond villain who tells you, here's what I'm doing. Here's the whole right, thing. Right, oh, right, Now right. I understand. Back to the yeah, story. Right, yeah. right. So I, I, I don't think that's good. But I, I think the trick is to, that the dialogue has to be in, in the voice of the character. So in, in Elmore Leonard's books, for example, he did an absolutely, at least to, to my estimation, did an absolutely fabulous job of of creating a character and then having them, their use of, of, you know, the choice of words and their slang and their, almost their cadence, as much as you can pick up cadence uh, in the written word, mm -hmm. you know, that all matched the character. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I go back and watch, if, if you've never seen it, watch Get Shorty. I think it's a great movie. And, and look at, you know, the difference in how John Travolta speaks from Gene Hackman, for example. Sure. You know, and they're just coming from completely different backgrounds. One is an LA guy, the other is a New York guy, or you know, New York slash Florida guy. And just how beautifully the screenplay and as well as the acting direction 
make those characters so real. I mean, there's nothing leaden about the dialogue. It just goes. Another one I really love is Jackie Brown. Oh, that's a great movie. Where the dialogue, the characters are so great and the dialogue is so real. You know, I don't, I don't know a lot of gangsters. In fact, I don't know any. <laughs> but I, I, you, when, you, when you watch this or, you know, listen to what they're saying and see how they're saying it, it's very realistic. And I was hoping that as I was writing the interactions among these people, most of whom who were talking were basically bureaucrats, I was yeah. hoping that, you know, without bewildering the, the reader with acronyms and, and, um, and uh, kind of inside baseball, that people would be able to get some appreciation for how you would speak in these scenarios, these situations. Well, so let me let me build on that point and ask you this: When so part of understanding the the dialogue is understanding that world, and I'm assuming that some of that came out through your through you knowing some of these people personally, but then also learning about them through those mutual friends. Right. I'm, I'm I'm curious what um, what did you learn about these people that you maybe didn't know beforehand, and kind of what was the most interesting trait that you learned about? you know, some of the, whether it be the FBI, the CIA, the Navy SEALs, et cetera, you know, what did you learn about these groups of people that, that struck you that maybe you didn't know beforehand? You mean it, in terms of writing the book? In terms of writing the book and in terms of developing their, their personalities throughout the story, uh, I'm assuming that you pulled some of that from, from um, either people that you knew or people that they knew that they told you about. And there, was there something you learned about them as in, in terms of their personalities that struck you that maybe you didn't know beforehand? You know, it's almost like what, what makes a good agent, what makes a good FBI agent, you know, that what that, makes a good seal, what makes a good seal, you know, is that kind of things that you were learning as you were doing the research or, or talking about those people with your uh, correspondence? Well, it, interestingly, the, um, the, the types of characters that I wrote about in this book were all people that I had no interaction with during the writing of the book, because I was out of that community. And I used to do research for the Navy. I used to do you know, think things in that, in the military kind of research community. And that was the environment in which I, would, I met those types of folks. Hmm. Um, I had, I had the, the pleasure, you know, the SEALs are at this point are kind of overexposed uh, to the point where they've, they've even, you've seen there've been some scandals where they've kind of been, been you know, drinking their own bathwater uh, in terms of how great they are. Uh, and they are great, um, but it is possible to get a little bit too big. Uh, for your bridges, or, or just too big as a command, I think is one of the complaints. Um, but when I was um, in aerospace, I, I met a lot of military officers and retired military officers. And I had a very memorable, memorable dinner one night with a fellow from what at that time was called Martin Marietta. It's a predecessor, one of the predecessors of Lockheed Martin today. Wow. Biggest defense contractor in the country. I guess biggest defense contractor in the world. Uh, at least outside of China and Russia. And we were, we were talking, with, uh, it was on a subject we were going to collaborate, our two companies were going to collaborate on something which was just, you know, not, not in the least bit esoteric, it was some kind of sensor system. But we we're just talking about, about careers. And I found out, and this is a fellow, he was about my height, which is not tall, walked with a, with a kind of pronounced stoop, um, quiet, not bombastic, but it turned out he had been a SEAL during Vietnam. The reason he walked with a stoop is he'd broken his back uh, in combat or in a, in a situation like that. Uh, and uh, he had been, been commander of SEAL Team One. You know, he retired as a captain. And 
it was, you know, listening to his stories. Well, one of the things you, you if you interact with, with people who are either in the military or claim to be in the military, you've always got some level of posers. Um, and as they say, you know, if, if you talk about it, you didn't actually do it. Right, right. I've heard that as well. Yeah. If you get to know these guys, and I've known, I've been fortunate to know a couple of SEALs, uh, real SEALs, not fake ones. They don't, they don't tell you that they're a SEAL when they first meet you. They don't tell you a SEAL until, you know, there's, there's some level of trust because they don't want to, they don't want that to be the, their definition. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but then when the stories come out, it's a very unique experience. Uh, because, you know, these, these guys do some pretty amazing stuff. Um, I'm, I'm curious, have you heard of Jocko Willink? I think I've heard the name. What, uh, is, does he have a YouTube channel now? Yeah, he's, he's a, a mainstream author and SEAL, but he's like that way where he, you wouldn't even know he's a SEAL unless, unless right. someone told you because he just doesn't talk about it that much outside of, you know, leadership and right. a few experiences relevant to that. Well, you know, given given the rigor of their training, and this is, I'm sure this is true of, of, of any special warfare community. Uh, I just know the SEALs the best. Um, given the rigor of their training and then what they experience in combat, um, there is a bond there, which is, you know, kind of like any anyone who's, who serves in the military has has a bond, particularly if they've been shot at together, mm. that that is is different and stronger than almost any other bond. And these guys are kind of like that bond on steroids. So yeah, maybe you, maybe really on steroids. I don't know. Right. <laughs> exactly. I don't. Right. Do you think that? Uh, do you think that the military is shaping now that there's less violence and less uh, combat that our troops are going through? Do you think that's going to have an impact on SEAL culture, just military culture in general moving forward? I don't know. I I think the the in some ways, if we withdraw troops, again, this is way outside of my. Uh, outside of my expertise, but I'll give you my opinion since we're talking. Sure. I think that you remember the, the special warfare community, the, the SEALs date all the way back to World War II to the, the um, UDT underwater demolition divers um, who, who cleared obstacles. Did, they did a reconnaissance on beaches, but they also destroyed obstacles and mines. Uh, but the uh, undersea, uh, uh, special warfare as a, as a discipline really started with President Kennedy. And the, and the Green Berets, and this concept that we would be able to fight conflicts, particularly during the Cold War, when we didn't want to have overt uh, battle with the Soviet Union uh, or China, uh, by, by having elite forces that could operate in small numbers, presumably be less expensive than masses of, of army or marine um, uh, divisions and be able to train local troops and do that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe provide, provide support. And, you know, if you look at what we're, what we're doing today in, in Africa, for example, that's kind of the model. I mean, there are groups of army rangers and seals and, and army deltas who are in different parts of Africa doing counterterrorism activities against Al-Shabaab or, or, you know, whoever is out there making mischief. Uh, and maybe if we continue to withdraw from a place like Afghanistan, that'll be the model again. Will be you'll have you'll have a small number group of highly trained um, operators who can backstop the locals. I think the problem is when you do that, you you end up with a question of will. 
you know, the bad guys are not stupid. And as someone, I don't know, if, remember if it was General Schwarzkopf, somebody famously said, you know, the enemy gets a vote. And, you know, if, if you, you know, you, you send a hundred SEALs or a hundred Rangers in someplace where you used to have 10,000 soldiers, Marines, what have you, that kind of speaks to a little lack of, of, uh, of uh, will to win on the battlefield. So, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure I answered your question, which was about whether these guys are going to get weaker. You know, all these things go through cycles. You know, the, the, the SEALs, you know, maybe they've gone through their zenith at this point and they're going to maybe the, the new administration will reduce uh, numbers a little bit. Although they're getting tasked, these guys are getting tasked for a lot of stuff. Um, all, you know, all this, the whole special warfare community is getting tasked like crazy because people, the, the commanders in theater want their skills. And their skills, as you know, aren't just shooting things. It's being able to get in, do reconnaissance and get back out again. Uh, you know, that's in some ways a big chunk of what these people do. Yeah, it seems, I'm sorry, go ahead. It, it, seems, it seems like that's, that's what, what the government's looking for now is more specialized group of people that can use intelligence and you know, better methods as opposed right, to just a right. sheer numbers game of having right, right, on the right. ground. Be, be smarter rather than uh, be bigger. Yeah. But as, uh, who was it? I think it was General Creighton Abrams when he was asked in the 60s, you know, the, the big controversy was the, the massive forces that the Soviet Union had. And uh, but the argument was, well, our, our, um, our weapons and our soldiers training, et cetera, et cetera, was much superior to the Eastern Bloc. And someone asked him, do you prefer quality or quantity? And General Abrams said, quantity has a quality all its own. Right. <laughs> so I think if you asked a commander, would you like to have 100 SEALs or 10,000 soldiers? He'd probably go for the 10,000 soldiers. As long as yeah. he doesn't have to pay for it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, that reminds me of the quote from Gary Kasparov about playing uh, Deep Blue and someone, you know, it's like, or maybe it was uh, Charles Crackhammer writing about that. He was like, at, at some point, quantity becomes a quality. I mean, <laughs> when, 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 the, when the computer is so much better, it's, you know, it, it's not intelligent. It doesn't matter. It can think so far ahead. It, it just takes away your advantage. And, uh, yeah, and that's how it works. It's just going through and evaluating every possible move. Right. Quantifying it and Something we do without realizing it, but probably not quite as extensively. Right, or right, or or as even as as accurately. And, uh, and right. the the result, of course, is you know now your now your cell phone can beat a grandmaster at chess. But <laughs> um, I wanted to let's bring it back to the book a little bit and kind of on that subject of, of cyber security, cyber warfare. Was that a part of the world that you knew about before having to research it, or did you, was not, that all research for you? Not professionally. I will say that there's a character in the book who is patterned after a very real cybersecurity expert. Okay. Uh, and I, I first, when I first, the first draft of the book actually used his name. And I, I'll, I'll give you his name, his name is Brian Krebs. Um, and then I said, you know what, I probably, without getting his permission, I probably shouldn't use his name. I thought, you know, it's easier just to, just to you know, invent the character based on it. Yeah. But Brian Krebs was a reporter for the Washington Post for many years and was at the forefront of exploiting, of, of exploring um, um, carding rings, you know, people who would, who would uh, create uh, fake credit cards. And then he was at the forefront of exploring uh, 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 gasoline 
or ATM scanner, you know, gas pump scanners, ATM scanners, some little device that gets slipped in the slot where the card goes. And then, and um, for whatever reason, he had a blog on the, on the Washington Post website for years. And then he went off on his own. Uh, I think it's, it may still be called Krebs on security, but much of what is written about in that, in that uh, uh, subject in the book is based upon work that, things that he's written about. Okay. For example, the rescator uh, ring of, of uh, credit card thieves. That's a real group in, uh, yeah. in uh, Russia, Ukraine. Um, so anybody who wants to learn more about that, just Google Brian Krebs and follow his. And one of the things that's such a compliment to, to Mr. Krebs is that if you look at the comments in his, you know that any, almost any blog is, is, is the, the comments are frequently much more informative than the actual blog. Um, although Twitter, I think somebody once said that Twitter is like the comments to a blog without the blog. But when you look at the comments and you, and you look at you know, what they're saying and you realize how much experience and authority is behind the, the commenters, I mean, these are people who really know their stuff. It's a real compliment to Brian Krebs that people like that follow him. I mean, he's not just a journalist, he's an expert. Yeah, and I just- and, and that comes out in the writing, just to look into the level of detail. But for, for me, at least when I was reading it, to me, that almost seemed the most scary because I can imagine you putting security to solve some terrorism problem. I can imagine you having a spy overseas who, you know, twerks out some corruption to their benefit. I cannot conceive of a way that you can keep billions of people safe online when it seems that there's just this ever-growing number of people who figure out a loophole or a caveat to a security paradigm and the game is afoot at that point. I, to me, that's what's so scary. I don't know how you prevent that from just continuing to be a massive, massive problem. Well, it, it, did we just have a, a, an issue that, that came up in the news in the last couple of weeks? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I still I still get my uh, credit report, free credit reporting services from the uh, the uh, U.S. government because I was part of the million one of the millions of Americans whose personal information was compromised at the um, um, what was it the um, not the Department of Labor it's the um, what's the agency that does it's the, basically the agency that does background investigations right right uh, yeah. the, uh, um, I can't think I'm having a middle age moment I can't think of the name mm-hmm. but. Uh, um, you know, that was a compromise. And as you know, most, most compromises are not due to some, you know, incredible tradecraft or technology. Right. Most of them are just social exploits where, where somebody ha- uses a default password or... Well, that was in the book. I, I won't give it away, but basically, you know, oh, yeah, person, yeah. right? Was, I mean, it was like... You're that right. was a fun scene to write. I enjoyed, yeah. I enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but you're right. I mean, how common would that be? I, I, I had a friend who lived in, in an apartment complex where every person could pick their own gate password. And so I was like, let me show you something and type in one, 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 the gate stays <laughs> open because there's, there's one idiot in the apartment complex who's like, I'm not going to remember anything else. Like, yeah. all right. And now there's no point <laughs> having a gate here, but if, yeah, talk, talk more about that. But I just remember thinking that that part of the chapter of the book was I thought really funny as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Phil, so do you think that we are getting a handle on all the security threats and cyber threats that are out there towards us? You know, it seems like whenever a virus gets developed, then we come up with an antivirus. 
And then whenever there's some sort of, uh, you know, way to steal credit card numbers, we come up with a fix for it. It's like this game of cat and mouse, it feels like. Do you think that the delta between the cats and the mice are is expanding or decreasing or staying the same? Or is there any sort of rules that govern that? That type of situation. It's well outside my expertise, but I can give you my opinion. <laughs> yeah, let's see, let's do uh, it. And and that and that is simply that humans are humans, and and as as Jimmy was saying, people people are, are lazy. They don't you know they they have to be forced to be secure, because it's not our default position. I I know I I uh, my first my first boss taught me something, um, which is that when we have in a conversation when there's silence, our natural tendency is to fill that silence. Mm. You know, we, we, we're very uncomfortable if we're not talking, you know, if we're faced with another human being. And this is kind of the same problem. You know, we, we have such a desire, and we just, we're just living through this right now, politically, we have such a desire to put our, our thoughts out there, right, that we, we bear our, you know, we, we could completely bear ourselves. At least some people do. I, my generation, probably less than, than your generation. Um, but we, we just bear ourselves to the internet in essence, you know, and, and once a picture's out there, you know, once, once, once a bite is out there, it's out there. And whether it's captured by the Wayback machine or by a foreign intelligence service, it's there. It's out there. You've, you've, you've lost it. And so it, it's, I don't know how that gets better unless we either, re, you know, retract some of that back to ourselves or create some really incredible multi-factor authentic, uh, authentication for things. Uh, but, you know, you, you even have solar winds. I, I don't, I didn't see all the details of how their, their system was compromised. I don't know if it was a backdoor or there was a password that hadn't been changed or what, you know, that's a big Big company, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're not some fly-by-night that the uh, the the uh, U.S. government decided to use for their computer security, and yet they got compromised. Yeah, and and just for reference, Solar Wind, they're a. I don't if I'm understanding what they are. They're a big software company that makes a lot, if not the majority, of a lot of the software in the U.S. Um, I, I think they they do security. I'm not entirely sure what they the do. Security. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. You you. I'm sure you know more about it than I do, but um, I don't know. I I, uh, yeah, I think we all try to be careful. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think we're all, we're all forced to be careful, right? I think we're all forced to be because it's like nowadays, make a password. It's like, no, that password's too easy. Try it again. And you're like, I don't want to try it again. He's like, no, try again. It's like, okay. That's, that's good until you've got a, a, a um, um, you know, a, a keyboard logger, right? Exactly, exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Or you can't remember it and you're having to call IT every day to reset your password because you can't remember 12 random letters in a row or something. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to close on that, just uh, with all this new technology, cell phones, you have these Alexa devices. I don't want to say it too loud, but uh, <laughs> all these different ears everywhere. Right. It, it almost makes you second guess some of the private conversations that you're having um especially seeing what's happened to certain people that express a particular political view nowadays or something well like, do you are you concerned about that type of thing well i mean i i never had a social media presence before about two months ago 
and it was intentional. I mean, I, I needed a social media presence because I needed it to, pub, to publicize okay. these books. But uh, I never had it. Um, and uh, even now, I have a political opinion, just like everyone else. I'm not going to put it out there, except in the most benign fashion. Because number one, it's a, it, these, are, these platforms are a very poor way of communicating. I mean, they're a good way of throwing things out there. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actually having a, 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 an argument in the purest sense of the word, an actual debate, an exploration of, of issues, they're, they're a terrible way. You know, you just throw it out there and then someone throws something back at you. And then you well, I, I totally disagree. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie. It's a wonderful movie by uh, Francis, Francis Ford Coppola, I believe, called The Conversation. Uh, I know of it. I haven't seen it, but I think I know what you're, what you're talking about. So get Shorty yeah. in The Conversation. If I there leave you with anything, watch those two movies. Uh, Gene Hackman plays a uh, yep. kind of a surveillance expert. Yep. You've seen it, Jimmy? I, I haven't seen it, but I know what you're, you know I, know, of I know of it, yes. Well, it yes. is, in a, you know, it's again, it's Gene Hackman. It's beautiful, it's beautifully acted, beautifully directed, but it's very chilling. And this is back to the 70s. Right. And, and one, of the, one of the devices that is, is disclosed in that is, a, is something which is able to turn an ordinary desktop telephone. Now, you guys may not know what that is. It was, a lot bigger than this and it had a dial on it and yeah. dial not even a keypad had right. a dial on it. Uh, but it would turn that telephone into a listening device uh and you know the 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 technology in those days was of course completely different from what we have today they were switch circuits rather than than internet protocol but even then right. people were worried about it. And of course it, it, even before that they were so-called party lines i don't know if you remember that the telephone Oh, uh, sure. Well, yeah. That were not unique to a particular home. Right. They were shared. So the operator, that, that was how they entertained themselves, was listening to the conversations. <laughs> because they could. Or, or other people on the party line could pick up the phone and listen. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, the debate over privacy is one that is going to be interesting to figure out experimentally, I think. But uh, I wanted to build off of what you were talking about with, with uh, marketing and social media. And transition just a little bit, I, I think, to the role of actually getting published. And I think for, for many people, I know myself included, it, and I, I'm sure there is a real purpose. Uh, one of them would just be to produce the, the, the hard you know, physical copy of the book. But what, what is the role of the publisher these days in the 21st century? What, what did you bring to the publisher first? When did you reach out to the publisher? But then also, what was the interaction and the feedback like between you and that company to get a book to market? Well, in the case of, of these two books, it was basically a matter of me talking to myself because they're actually self-published. Oh, nice. there you go. So, so this, is, this is how much the industry has changed. The first thing to know about publishing is that the vast majority of the books, I forget whether it's three quarters or 90%, but they lose money. It's a little bit like venture capital. You know, most of the investments lose money, but you expect that the ones that go big are the ones that are going to pay for all the rest. So breaking in as a new writer is very difficult. So the, the standard technique is you write a letter and you say, here's who I am. This is what I've written. You maybe send a chapter or something like that. And you send it to an agent. And that agent then provides value by knowing which publishers might be interested in this particular work and um, you know, having a way to kind of get in the door with the publisher. 
you know, it's not a cold call for them. They, they know sure. they have a relationship with the editors at the, at the publisher. But even for me, I wrote, I don't know how many, maybe I wrote it only a dozen or two dozen letters uh, and got responses like nothing or uh, thank you very much, but we're not looking for books in your genre. And this is after I've researched which agents might be good. And you know, you could write, easily write a hundred of these letters sure. um, to, I'm not, not taking any projects right now. And what I decided was given where we are in technology, I would rather spend my time uh, doing the writing and then doing the publishing than having to go through all these layers, which in many ways are anachronism. Yeah. And if you're if you're if you are a a um, you know a very prolific published writer where everything kind of runs on autopilot, you know your agent knows that you know you're going to create something which is going to generate that ten percent fee they want or whatever number they get, and you know, they're going to answer your phone call as soon as you, as soon as you call and they're going to make sure everything goes smoothly and they're going to, you know, handle your publicist who's going to arrange your, your book signings and all the rest of this. You know, I figured the probability for me that I was going to get a deal with any of these folks um, was, it was going to be time consuming, first of all. Sure. And one of the things I, I, was told, and, and perhaps this is not true, but I believe it is true, is that again, as a new writer, you're going to be covering all the all the uh, the promotion. Sure. You know, you're, you're not. They're not going to give you a pot of money. Here's fifty thousand dollars. Go promote this book. They're <laughs> right. not going to do that. They're going to right. wait till you sell your, you know, you know, your thirty-five thousand copies or whatever it takes to be a bestseller. That's the surprising thing. You know, it doesn't take a million copies to be a bestseller. I think that the this industry number is thirty-five thousand. Oh, wow. Uh, and I'm like 34,900 away from that right now. Right, 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 right. Well, Joe's bought a copy too, so you should be over Thank there. Thank you. All right. <laughs> um, but um, the, the, the way that this, the, the self-publishing world works now mm -hmm. is, is, first of all, it was greatly eased by the advent of eBooks mm -hmm. because now you didn't have to have physical content right. that had to be warehoused, had to be produced warehoused and distributed right now it's all done electronically uh, so that's a no-brainer but a lot of people still like to have a physical book um, and in fact a lot of people like to have audiobooks that's a whole nother subject i haven't even gotten to that yet um, that is i haven't gotten to that yet right yeah can we expect an audiobook for false flags I'm, you know i'm i'm, I'm thinking about it because i've had a couple uh, a couple of people you know a couple of people i've talked to about this is oh I, that sounds great but i really don't read books anymore i do audio <laughs> yeah it's expensive you know it's just an investment the question is whether i get it back but to, to finish this topic uh in um i don't know it's been five years now uh, less than 10 between five and ten years ago a uh, a, a revolution came about in publishing which is what's called print on demand P.O.D. Hmm. And what print-on-demand means, you know, I, I knew people over the years who published, self-published a book. And what they used was, used to be advertised on the radio. They were called vanity presses, you know, meaning I'm vain enough that I want to publish. Exactly right. <laughs> and, and these vanity presses would basically, they take your money and they would typeset it. Maybe they'd edit it. I don't know what the features, they the quality, you know, the uh, things they brought to it. But they would, they would typeset it, print it, and then you'd get a bunch of cardboard boxes you'd store in your garage 
until you could give away all the copies. Right. Every every Christmas, hand out 10 That's copies. Right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. I've given you one of these. Oh, yes, for the last 10 years, Grandpa. You know, that kind of thing. So uh, what, what print on demand, you know, and that's kind of what an independent publisher had to do. They had sure. to find a press that would set up the, you know, set up the up offset printing press and crank out these copies, do the covers, all the rest of that. And then they would store them until they could full, fulfill them, right? Right. You know, and there were, there were publications that would say, oh, here's this great new book out along with the 10,000 others. So what print on demand allows you to do is to publish a book in printed form without having to carry an inventory. Mm-hmm. The way I did this is I used, Amazon has its own internal capability now called, um, uh, it had a different name. They actually bought a, a print on demand company and it's now called KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing. Okay. I used a company called Ingram, which started out as the, is the largest distributor of books, physical distributor of books or distributor of physical books in the country. And they have an international presence, uh, but they launched a print on demand service which makes a lot of sense because then they've got soup to nuts. Right, right. And, and so the way it's set up is I uploaded my Kindle versions of these two books directly to Amazon. And it goes right into their catalog within a day. For the physical books, I didn't use Kindle Direct Publishing because Kindle Direct Publishing does not do hardcovers. And I knew I wanted a hardcover of the nonfiction book because there's demand for that. And so I used Ingram and so far I've been happy with them. Um, What they do is they, once you complete the setup and the setup is all done electronically, you get it, actually get a proof, a PDF proof, which includes the cover and all the interior matter. And you review that. And then you can even ask for a proof copy, but the problem is it takes, takes some time to get the proof copy. Sure. Um, it's actually faster, believe it or not, to order it from Amazon than to order it from Ingram because they give Amazon priority. Uh, there you go. So when I log in my Ingram account, they say it could be 30 days before I get a copy of this book, but I got right. one from Amazon in six. Right. Bezos on speed dial. and uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right, right. So what happens is they transmit the information to Amazon. It now goes into their massive catalog and when they get an order that gets, I don't know, I assume that Ingram also fulfills it, that they also mail it, but uh, they then will print the copy and send it off. Now Ingram will warehouse the books if I want to have a print run done, but at this point I don't have a tremendous desire to do that. And I, I have some copies of my own uh, because sure. people ask me for them, uh, but I'm not going to do the fulfillment. It's just, it's a, a whole nother business to be in. But I, I guess the point is that the publishing piece for me is I'm a do-it-yourselfer. Sure. You know? and, and I like having the control. That's why I started my own business. I like having the control. It's not onerous. And in fact, it's kind of fun. I did the typesetting. I used a software package on the Mac called Vellum to do the typesetting. And it, it works very well. It doesn't do everything. It won't make every kind of book. But it does a beautiful job with what I needed it to do. And it was pretty straightforward. Yeah, the, the printing on demand seems like it makes a lot of sense, especially when you don't have a good idea of how many books are going to sell or what the demand for the, the book will be. Um, if, if you don't mind sharing, what, what type of cut does the publishing company take for each copy or how do they get their, their piece of the pie? 
Uh, the printer takes too much, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I will tell you the, uh, the share, let me think about that. Um, the share that the author, the press slash author, gets is about a third of the cover price when all is said and done. Okay. So the, the way it works with, for example, well, with, with either one, is there's a, in the Amazon case, is a, what's called a, um, I don't know, they call it distribution charge. Basically, it's, the, it's what they charge you for warehousing and sending your data. And that's usually, that's small. It's mean, it's less than a dollar typically. Uh, then they take 30%. And you get and you get the balance. Uh, so you actually make a little more on a, on a percentage basis from um, Kindle. Well, interestingly, Kindle's very. I don't know why they are. They're fairly restrictive on on the pricing, but that's hmm. another story. On the on the print side, um, the they take off the top the cost of printing, and then they take off the cost of shipping, and then you get the rest. Right. So it's uh, oh, and then of course you have to discount it because the, the whoever's whoever's selling it, like Amazon, you got to give them a thirty percent discount. And in fact, one of the strategic decisions I've made so far—I don't know if it's the right decision, but it's the decision I've made—is on the discounting part. A, a bricks and mortar bookstore wants to have wants to see a discount of forty or fifty percent. Oh wow! Um, and so the decision one has to weigh as an independent uh, publisher is um, whether the roughly 10% now, I mean, I'm ashamed to say, because I love bookstores, but bricks and mortar bookstores only, only uh, correspond to 10% of book sales in the United States right now. Mm. So, uh, you know, do I, do I discount it that much to sell a few dozen copies a year or do I just say, go to Amazon? And I hate to do it. I feel disloyal. Um, but, uh, and, you know, what I, I'll do certainly in the Tucson area is I'll, you know, talk to independent bookstores and say, look, I can, I can give you that discount if I buy the books and, you know, hand them to you because I'll buy a, a stack of them. Right. I, I don't get nickel and dime by the printer. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just, you know, the, the, the next decision I have to make, which I'm kind of researching right now is how to advertise. It. Yeah. yeah. So, so Amazon will, you notice, you, you know, they don't give you anything for free. Um, and so if you notice a lot of times you search for a book, something will come up that says, you know, other readers right. you know, who bought this book bought such and such. Well, that's not being done out of the goodness of their hearts. Right. Those other, those other, that's right. The other, the other uh, publishers uh, have paid some small amount for that thing to show up every time somebody searches a particular set of keywords. So I'm wrestling with that, how to, how to do that. And, you know, it, it, allegedly the ROI is good. I mean, it's maybe five to one, in which case it's well worth doing. Hmm. It's just scary. You know, I'm already so far in the hole. Right. You know, thousands of dollars doing both of these books. Um, you know, in a way, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it to support myself. Thank God, I don't have to do that. Right. I, would, I would like to get, rev, you know, revenue neutral at some point. <laughs> well, let me ask you this: what what role? And I I don't mean to put you on the the spot, but it, as far as labeling yourself a writer, how important is that to be making money as a writer? You know, is that in other words, when you're when you're kind of exploring this path in your life and this idea of being a writer, do you hold yourself to a standard of 
I will make money at this, or if not, I will not have thought it was a good use of time, or it, are you just enjoying the process so much that it's okay that if it never makes money, it was still fun and worth doing? I, I, I would probably write even if I never intended to publish because I enjoy the process and it keeps, it keeps me occupied. Now, sure. would it be productive use of my time? Probably not. My, my, my metric is, am I writing something other people, you know, who don't have, don't have my same gene pool, (laughs) (laughs) you know, um, something besides my friends and relatives, am I writing something other people want to read? And, um, and that's really the test. I, I would like to make money. I don't care if I make a lot. I would like to make money because in a sense, it's a validation. It's a way of saying it's not just a hobby. You know, it's not just, I'm not just being a dilettante. I'm actually, you know, this is my next career. Uh, and it's my intention to, to do it, you know, and, and hopefully I'll be able to, to at a minimum, make it revenue neutral and hopefully re- revenue. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then playing off that, that idea of writing to your audience. Uh, I had a question about the revision process itself. And I want to give an example of the author. His name's Neil Strauss. He's a New York, multiple New York Times bestselling author. And he described his writing process as how he would write his first draft um, for himself, just how it naturally comes out. Mm-hmm. And then he would go back, rewrite it under the consideration of his audience, like what his audience wants to hear. And then he says he goes back a third time to do it for his haters. So he just rereads the entire body of work and just makes sure that nothing can get picked out of context. Hmm. He kind of visualizes who's going to be making, you know, picking fights with him for what, and then tries to bulletproof it from that sense. What, what, uh, what genre does he write? Uh, he writes a lot of nonfiction, pop culture type. Okay. Okay. Type so there's good so, Yeah, though, absolutely. Okay. Um, there, are, but, there are haters. Let's just be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, many. But my question for you is what, what does your revision process look like? Is it a big part of the whole process in total? Because I know a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on revision. Or where does that sit for you? Well, again, I have only written two books now. It's a little, little early to say what my process is, but I, I, um, I did an internal revision um, before it went to an editor. And then the editor made some kind of copy editing changes and made some other suggestions. I, I, would, I would say uh, I probably don't revise enough. I don't think anybody does because you can always make it better. In fact, that's... It's a little bit like engineering. You know, there's, a, there's yeah. an expression in, in program management that says sometimes you have to shoot the engineers. <laughs> that's because, um, you know, it, you, if you're an engineer uh, and if you're right, I mean, you're any type of, of, of person who cares about their craft like that, it can always be better. Right. Yeah. And so that is part of, for me, that was one of the hardest things was deciding when it was, when it was done enough. So, you know, I, I, I didn't do any wholesale revisions in, in either of these books. Uh, I, you know, would, would revise kind of line by line or paragraph by paragraph. And there are places where I reordered things and, and did things like that. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, um, I mean, I think an editor is very useful. I did have other people, you know, like my, my father is a very, very uh, uh, skillful writer. He's an attorney. And he's an mm. excellent writer. And, and he's, you mentioned writing for your audience. That was one of the things he kept, yeah. he always brings, brings to me. When I wrote Marion the Monk, for example, 
I decided that part of what I wanted to do was to document the details, a lot of the very arcane details of this evacuation, kind of the central um, right. um, thing that happens in this, in this story over the 80 years of this man's life. And, and, I, and I knew when I wrote that chapter that it was way too detailed. It was, but I wanted to capture it and then I would figure I would prune it. So at least I had this, you know, this was captured because it, right. it was not captured anywhere else. And then I pruned it and it, it, it may still be too dense, but one of the things that my editor suggested, which I think was very clever was, you know, when you look at the, that book, you see in essence, three different stories. There's a story of this man kind of from his birth up to the Korean war. Then there's the Korean war. And then there's his life as a monk. And then his, you know, the, the movement towards his canonization. And so it's actually now broken into three, into three parts. And what that does, it doesn't, all it adds is a couple pages. It doesn't add that much value for the reader, except to say, you know, your mindset is here now. It's a biography. Now it's more like history. Now it's kind of back to a biography again. Mm, right. But, you know, th those, are, those are things where I, I, I don't know if any of the great writers like a, like a uh, Hemingway or a Steinbeck or whoever, if they, if they wrote things without revising them, it's hard to imagine they would. Because I'm sure they were very hard on themselves. That'd be insane. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Um, but uh, you know, it's like I don't know. Mozart writing a piece of music and that not having any corrections on it. All right, right. It could happen, but it probably doesn't. Right. Um, I, I mean, I, I invite you. You both read uh, False Flags, right? Correct. Correct. Can, did. Can you see places where where it needed revision? I don't, I mean, I, I would not say revision. What I, what I would say is what I enjoyed the most, I, I, I guess I let, let me say this. I enjoyed the second half of the book better than the first half of the book. For me, I really enjoyed the, the scenes and the detail where there was uh, espionage afoot and okay. there are people talking about the military and there are people talking about one thing that you, that you've captured phenomenally and it's literally the ending and I won't give it away, but you, you, you see the Navy SEALs face a life and death situation, let's say, but in a very unexpected way. But it was, there was just a level of, of granularity in some of the decision-making, but then also you, you captured, on one hand, you captured how high the stakes are, but then at the exact same time, there's this overall arcing of true but we're purposely keeping the response trivial etc cetera, etc cetera. and the way that you you capture the mindset of the oval office and the mindset of the people out in the field to me i i thought was just extremely exciting and it, it just gave it a very three-dimensional feel in my head of like you know if this stuff goes on and we never know about it and even the people that are involved don't really know all the details and yet this whole kind of machine plunks together you know for for, for me i enjoyed that part better than the the crime investigation but that i think was more just a a, a personality you know I, I i enjoyed that story more than the other story but i thought you know that could easily be the opposite for somebody else who enjoyed the the crime more so than the than the fallout or the response well that, that's a you know that's a great point there's a there's a genre it's kind of subgenre of mysteries or thrillers called police procedural hmm. and so kind of the first half of the book is a is like a police exactly. procedural yeah. Yeah. with this with this this big this big thing kind of overshadowing it. Yeah. So that, that says basically, um, 
you, you prefer this other thing compared to police procedurals. So. Yeah, right, right. Um, Phil, I think that one of the takeaways that I'm getting from this is that your, your writing and your books is more of a reflection, not only of just the recent research that went into the book, but the greater, the greater breadth of knowledge and experience that got you up to that point, you know, spanning your entire life. Um, and, and I'd like to know a little bit more about some of your past careers or um, current projects that you have going. I know you talked about the Naval uh, Research Institute and I th you mentioned that you have a PhD. Can you expand on some of those things? Well, I, I'm a, by training a physicist, I got a bachelor's degree and then went to work in Navy in uh, Washington for the Naval Research Lab, working in lasers and laser materials, solid state lasers. Mm. This is back in the eighties or kind of early mid eighties. And then I went up to a place called MIT Lincoln Laboratory, which is in uh, Lexington, Mass, which is an Air Force MIT runs, a, a, a laboratory MIT runs for the Air Force. Um, basically, um, involved in, in remote sensing and worked in, in what was called in those days, the SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, which was the, the, the 80s version of missile defense. It was a huge program. President Reagan made kind of a hallmark of his administration. Uh, and um, uh, after that, I, uh, we kind of got tired of the winters in, in uh, Massachusetts and we ended up moving to Tucson. And nice. I worked for a small aerospace company, the Electro-Optics Development Center of a small aerospace company out in Tucson. Did, uh, we started out in research, but really moved quickly into program management and business development. Uh, I then worked, uh, again, in, in laser systems, so kind of moving up the food chain, as it were. And then um, after uh, five or six years there, I uh, went to work. I, I knew I wanted to start my own business. So I... Uh, went to work for a small company, took over as vice president for, um, for uh, what was it called? Vice president for uh, engineering services for a, a kind of small mid-sized optics company in Tucson and learned the ins and outs, the goods and the bads of how to run a small business. And um, then in 2000, I started the company called Ambilux. Um, and my vision when I started the company, at that time we had the so-called telecom boom I was very interested in, um, in um, optical communications. You know, if you remember fiber optics and all that right. kind of stuff was very big. So-called free space optical communications was the kind of thing I wanted to do. And so I went through and uh, wrote uh, some business plans and shopped it around with venture capitalists and, and managed to time things. So I was starting the company just when the boom had busted. Wow. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. <laughs> April 2004 was when, was when the bubble burst and I was doing this in, in the end of the year. So... Um, so at that point, I kind of returned to my Navy roots because I had been doing work for um, um, the Office of Naval Research and some other commands inside the Navy and said, hey, I've started this company. I have some ideas that might be applicable to undersea stuff. Um, would you like to support them? I said, sure. You know, we like the work you've done before. Send us a proposal. And so I kind of bootstrapped the business on Navy work in um, under, underwater communications. And in fact, uh, for a number of years, we had kind of the leading high bandwidth underwater communications product in the world. And we wow. really got a ton of inquiries from China. Um, and uh, that's a whole other, another story. Right. Uh, but uh, the, uh, that work eventually ended up 
uh, leading to the sale of that business to an oil exploration company. Back when, you know, back when oil was $100 a barrel. Right, <laughs> exactly right. So uh, that was 2014. And then uh, in parallel with that, I had started a solar business uh, with an uh, electrical contractor friend of mine. So we did a, a number of large solar installations around Tucson, including some which I still own. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the, those were the businesses that I wound down to pick up this uh, next career. <laughs> so I, I covered a lot of territory. One of the things, and I, I noticed when you were talking about uh, the role of self-publishing, and it's, it's an idea that I've thought about a lot in kind of recently too. I don't know if you're familiar with a venture capitalist by the name of Peter Thiel, oh, yeah. uh, obviously a huge venture capitalist and entrepreneur type guy. And, you know, he has this idea that basically too many people try to fit their life into these track paths, he calls them. So like all the smart people try to compete to become lawyers at Stanford, only a few of them make it. Everybody right. else is equally smart get to press and do something else. I think one of the solutions for that, and I think one idea that Peter talks about, and definitely one that I've thought about just for my own life, is people finding a way to, to cut the line in some sense between where they are and where they want to be. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about self-publishing, it, it seems like what you found a way is to cut the line. It's that you decided, I'm not going to wait for a publisher to find me. I'm going to find my own publisher. And I want you to talk a little bit about kind of that mindset and then how that's been applicable to maybe other parts in your life, but then maybe just broadly in terms of entrepreneurialism, this idea of, of cutting lines and not waiting for things to happen. Well, you know, that's, that's, a, I think, a, a, an element of entrepreneurship where you are, you have enough self-confidence and maybe just enough foolishness to give up security. Um, and, you know, and I, and that's, I, you know, I'm the, the oldest of seven children and they're all very successful professional, uh, you know, a bunch of Ivy League educated lawyers. I mean, just very, very, you know, wonderful people and very professionally successful in the conventional sense. But none of them besides me have ever lived out in a flyover state. They've always lived mostly on the, in New York or Washington, D.C., or a little bit in Los Angeles or San Francisco. So I have a little different... Um, little, I guess a little different professional chemistry for want of a better term, where I don't care about being a master of the universe. I'd much rather do something that is a little bit more on my terms. And most importantly for me, the ability going off and, and having my own business for 20 years uh, and now doing what I'm doing now gave me the flexibility to do a lot of things that were not job related. And I was served on a lot of nonprofit boards. I have a lot of activity in, in organizations, including one that your, your dad, Jimmy, isn't very closely involved in. Right. And so a lot of it, I think, comes down to work life, you know, where you want your work life balance to be. Right. If you, if your goal is to be a, well, you may, your goal may be to be Peter Thiel and be a multimillionaire or billionaire, whatever, wherever he is right now. Um, you know, the conventional track may, may work. Young conventional track may work, but I think if your goal is to have flexibility in your life, in terms of where you balance, you know, wh where the income comes from, where the income goes, and and how you interact with the rest of the world, including your your loved ones and mm -hmm. the other people around you, there's nothing like having your own business, and 
you know, once you've done it once, you know, you hear this expression, serial entrepreneurs, I'm very small potatoes. You know, I've got a lot of friends who are far more successful than I am, who, you know, it's almost, it's almost addictive. You know, you start a company, you know, you build it up to a certain point, you sell it or do whatever. And you say, you know, I kind of miss that. Right. I miss that, that, that piece. And in fact, I, I work with a, an entity at the University of Arizona called Tech Launch Arizona that helps um, spin out companies from the University of Arizona. And I've, and I've mm. had a lot of very, very um, enjoyable interactions with some of the professors, which is one I'm working with right now. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that ability to break out of, out of the mold. Right. Once upon a time, the standard was you either, you, you know, you, you worked on your farm until your kids took it over and you died. Or you went to work in the whatever, name the office or factory, whatever, and you worked until you got your gold watch. Right. We don't have that security anymore. And, and right. we, don't have, we don't have people who are willing to do that. Uh, maybe I would have done that if I could have, you know, done that for 40 years in a city I wanted to live in. Right. Maybe I would have. I don't know. Yeah. Why do you think people, more people don't pursue that career of establishing a better work-life balance and more freedom in their lives? Because it seems like that's the exception, not the norm. I, I think, I think, um, I mean, I don't know. I think it probably depends on the, on the person. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I'm very blessed to be able to do that. Uh, a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. They can't afford the risk. Right. They, they, you know, I had a, a wife who, you know, who had a good job and I have a family that, you know, God forbid, we're both out of work, you know, we wouldn't starve. Right. But, you know, a lot of people can't, can't afford that. And I really admire particularly immigrants who come to this country with nothing mm. and are willing to scrimp and save and work their tushes off to make a better life for themselves and their, and their families. Um, you know, other people just don't, don't want that. They're, they're happy to do the nine to five and there's nothing wrong with that. Happy to do the nine to five. And then, you know, whether their job is a career or just a place to make money, I don't know, but it's, uh, I think to be able to do it is a blessing. I think not everybody is, is willing to do it or motivated to do it. I think for some people there don't want to take the risk and for some people they just don't care. They're just happy with how things are. Um, you know, for me, it, it, it was, you know, the time when I did it was the right time because uh, it was right before my kids were going to be going to college. So I had a couple of years to kind of get things sorted out before, right. before the big bills came. That's right. Oh, and, and literally, it was, it was that kind of consideration. It was, right. okay, if this doesn't work out, I got time to get another job. Right. And we will pay for their college or what have you. Um, so that, that's the other piece. You know, you have to do this at the right time of your life. You have to do it very young, you know, when you don't have anything to lose, you don't have right. more and kids and all that, or you have to do it at a point when you can, you can take a little risk and, you know, not everybody's at that point. Not everybody's willing to take that risk. And I, and I, I like uh, the timing obviously is, is key. And I, I think also, uh, and I, I think Bill, you and I have talked about this before and certainly other authors that we have read is I, I, I still think that as a, as a species, we're still adapting to, the internet and to electronics. And I, I think we haven't yet seen the final way that these technologies will encourage people to try, you know, being their own boss, et cetera. And I just think back to your example of, of self-publishing, 
you don't have to go back very far. That would have just been completely impossible. Now it's a few clicks away. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you see technology changing the startup landscape. And in particular, if you see anything more in terms of distribution or whether it be remote work or just people that are able to not go in all the way. Like, so for example, you're able to write a book. Conceivably, you can write a book whilst you're working at another job because of the flexibility that technology gives you. Do you, do you see those forces? You know, what, what, what parts of those forces do you, do you see playing out in maybe the, the near term with regards to startups, et cetera? Well, it, I don't think it's as much question that technology has made it easier to, to, start, to start a business. I mean, if you think about once upon a time, even if something is as routine as the need to have a secretary, mm-hmm. you know, is that, you know, you know, I don't know if that's a sexist term now, but you know, you used oh, yeah. to have somebody who knew how to type, mm-hmm. right. And knew how to do answer the phones, right. Before voicemail, you need to have another whole nother layer of staff. You know, I, I ran, you know, for the last couple of years, I ran um, solar business out of my home office. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't need, I had, I had offsite space that I had, but I didn't need a whole infrastructure because it's all done electronically. Um, so, you know, startup, I think the low hanging fruit on that is already out there. Okay. I think, I think my concern about technology is a little bit broader and that is that it's kind of the, the, the bread and circus can, can concern. You know, I've ever seen the movie Wally. Oh. I don't know why you right. with, with the robot. With the yeah. robot. Okay, right. you guys both see yes. Great not, movie. Not, not too old for it. Another another homework assignment. We have conversation, get shorty, and of course Wally. Everybody oh, Wally. Right. So so Wally in, in Wally, the premise is that that uh, humans have destroyed the planet ecologically. They both basically cover it with so much trash that, that everybody climbs onto a giant spaceship and they go off into space. And there's nothing to do on the spaceship besides eat bad food and watch TV, basically. And so they all become giant fat blobs because they can't move. You know, they don't have to move because right. machines take care of all their right. needs. Right. Yeah, they just yeah. stuff the food in themselves. Right. And I think that's the kind of the danger we have with technology is that we're so now removed in so many ways from, from for one better, I'll just say from production, hmm. right? You know, if I type something out, on the computer and I send something electronically, did I just produce something? I guess I did, I produced information, but I didn't, I didn't grow a bushel of food. Hmm. You know, I didn't grow wheat, I didn't grow soybeans. I didn't, I didn't raise a cow, you know, I didn't make a car. So as we get farther and farther away from the kind of the hands-on parts of, of work, do we become, you know, more and more of these kind of if not physically these blobs, intellectually these blobs, hmm. where, where we're, we're, you know, we, we're, you know, and I'm as bad as anybody. The internet is a, is a sink for, for, <laughs> for males, right? Right. You, just, right. you know, it, it's that reptile brain movement, 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 movement. So, right. movement. Uh, so you know, it's, I, I worry that we become dehumanized by some of this technology. I think we do in our personal interactions, hmm. just follow Twitter and look right. at what people say about each other. And I have a, I have a, uh, a premise that I've espoused to my children much to their chagrin, which is that you know, our current kind of social political 
um, divides started with the 24-hour news cycle, the CNN. You can blame it on CNN, 1979, where they started. And the need to keep eyeballs on the screen. And so everything, you have to have a crisis, crisis a minute, crisis a day at least, right? Otherwise, if it's just, you know, what's the weather in Florida, people aren't going to watch. So you have to have disaster. You have to have political infighting. You have to have this and that. And so we had, you know, we had, and we had, you know, little different flavors of that. We had Fox, we had MSNBC and whatever else. And then came the internet. And then you didn't just have three or four of these things. You now had thousands and everybody could give their opinion and not very generously to their fellow man, man or woman. So, you know, our technology is not consistent with the rate at which we process information ultimately. I mean, I see what I see and, and it, it, it registers at some level, but in my deeper thoughts, am I actually thinking about, right. you know, what that guy just said to me? Right, the am synthesis. About, yeah. Right, am I actually thinking, for example, before I respond? No, I pick up my phone and say, you, you know, SOB, whatever, you know, the, the, whatever those, all those symbols are, we used to put right. for bad words, right? Right, exactly right. Now, now it's just a duck. And so the pace at which we're interacting using technology is too fast for a social. You know, it's not like you can sit with a friend and slowly over an hour or two have a conversation. It's got to be snippet, 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 punchy, whack him and, you know, punch him in the nose type stuff. And it's just, it's not good for us. We know it's not good for us, but we can't stop. It's like sugar. Right. <laughs> just so, like sugar. It's <laughs> like sugar. It's more addictive than yeah. cocaine. Yeah. You know? so yeah. I think, you know, I'm hoping we're going through, I don't know, it's the, the nadir or the zenith. I hope we're going through part of the cycle and we're going to get out of it. You know, people will start being more humane to each other, but uh, boy, that's quite a tangent from asking about technology <laughs> and startups. But. No, no, no. I, I think it's all related actually, because I think, uh, I mean, we are creating a world that is more and more foreign to the world that we evolved in. That's and, absolutely correct. Absolutely. So absolutely. we are, we are at the beginning of, I think, determining our fate as a species. And that's really where I, where I see us actually is this is, you know, and, it, and it, it's a cliche, but that I, this really is the decision point for if we go on to live forever, or if we just crash the ship and, you know, on the Titanic, play the music and throw the chairs out into the ocean. But I mean, I, to me, right, this is the breaking point where we have a choice to make and everything you're talking about, uh, I think is everybody in their life will, will be able to agree with what you're saying because we've all experienced it. And I guess for, for me, what I'm curious of is, you know, maybe this is a bit of a juxtaposition, but you were just talking about the impact of snippets of information and about thinking quickly, et cetera, et cetera. And yet in this world that you obviously that you observe and you, and that you take in, you decide to go and write a novel, which is the opposite form of communication that requires sitting down, thinking long-term and engorging information, synthesizing it, et cetera. Was that risky for you? Because obviously you have this concern socially about, you know, the, the Twitter soundbite, et cetera. But at the same time, you took the risk of saying, I'm going to write 300 pages and a story. And I'm going to count that there is enough audience out there that will sit down and will read this thing and uh, give it its due diligence. Well, you know, it starts out as an experiment. You know, mm -hmm. when you write something, you, first of all, you never know if you're going to finish it. You never know if it's going to be any good. You never know if people are going to want to read it. 
so I, I still I still consider this kind of experimental. Right. You know, I, I I my intention is to keep writing. My hope is people will want to read. Uh, and I think that in some ways the the, the ability to uh, unplug, you know, that, that that may include using your Kindle, but the ability to unplug from the 24-hour news cycle, not just the 24-hour news cycle, the second-by-second second news cycle. 24-second yeah. news cycle. Yeah, exactly. Continuous. But I, I think, you know, and you look at, you know, book, book sales, you know, if you include ebooks, are huge. I mean, people, you know, you got to throw in audio books too, but, right. but people are still, are still willing to do that. Um, and so I, I think that, that the, the future for all writers is positive. Uh, I think it, it, you know, I look at, at my case, you know, part of it's going to come down to quality that I produce and part of it's going to come down to promotion hmm. because if people don't know it exists, they don't know to buy it. So first you got to tell them it exists and then they can make that decision. Right. Yeah, Phil, have... you. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And we're we're happy to promote it. Everybody, false flags. Go buy it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Go, go ahead. Um, yeah. Have Have you considered, uh, or do you? Are you active in blogs or Twitter or any of those I quick dopamine be. forms of that's, of writing? That's kind of the 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 the, the common wisdom um, is to have that presence. And I I'm probably a year or two too late. <laughs> Because I haven't built a following, you know, I have, I have a, I think I've, I mean, I have a couple of Twitter accounts, um, none of which I really do what I should on, which is to continually spout meaningless things to get people to look at it, get the eyeballs. Right. Uh, but no, I've got a Facebook account. Uh, Catalina Press has a Facebook account. I've got an Instagram account, which I don't think I've posted anything on yet. So it's all there, and it just needs to be exploited. But unfortunately, I don't have, you know, 10,000 followers that I can say, hey, look what I did. Right. Go buy this. <laughs> well, if, I, if I had any sense is what would have happened. I would have been posting things that were so attractive that I built up a big following. And then next thing you know, I could sell this book. But right. Well, I, I have one more question that I want to end on. But Joe, before I ask it, I want to give you a chance to cover anything that you wanted to ask uh as well before uh before we start wrapping things up i'm going to give you an opportunity to um yeah i mean i would just have a general question and what advice you would give for you know people that are trying to find what their vocation what career path they want to go down or you know even what industry like what the best way to find that and find a fulfilling position would be well i i would say you know start with no preconceived notions you know, we're very fortunate we live in an age where people can pretty much be anything they want to be, or at least try. So, you know, if, you know, realistically, we all have to balance that with the need to make a living. Uh, so, you know, there's that piece of responsibility that, you know, depending on where you are in your life, it gets bigger or smaller. Um, but the only thing I would say is don't be afraid to try something different uh, because, you, you know, maybe you'll find what you thought you wanted to do, you don't want to do. And that's, that's valuable by itself, because right. then you're not spending the next decades saying, if only I had done X, I'd be happy. You know, maybe that's not what's going to make you happy. So I think it's valuable to give it a shot, even if it's as a hobby or as a, um, you know, a, a sabbatical, a leave, whatever. 
you know, and then maybe you'll find you're either no good at it or you don't like it or oh, <laughs> don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to try. Yeah. That was uh, a great, a great answer and ties into the final question for Phil before we, we wrap things up. And I, I will confess, I am, I am plagiarizing this question from Peter Thiel. It's a question that he used to use for interviewing people. Uh -oh. uh, and the first time that I heard it, I thought that's a really good question. And I have no idea what my answer would be, <laughs> but uh, it's, an, it's, it's a great question. And so, uh, Phil, I want to ask you this. Um, what, is, what is something you believe to be true but nobody else believes to be true. In other words, what is something that, that you believe or that you know to be true that you have a hard time convincing other people of that nobody else seems to agree with you on? Um, well, I believe that the Q shaman is actually the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Who, who is Q shaman? I have to write that down, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the guy with the... Uh, with the uh, um, crazy helmet and the fur who, uh, Oh, good. Oh, that guy, the Viking. Yes. 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 The, the, the QAnon nut who, uh, was, was in the, uh, yeah, yeah, you probably strike that from the, uh, from the interview. No, that's going to be our most popular tweet right there. That'll be perfect. Yeah, no. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's a controversy <laughs> we needed. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's a, it's a great question. What's so great about it is yeah. you probably, I don't know if anybody ever asked, did anyone ever answer that question extemporaneously? Yeah. You know, it's a, I, the reason I ask is because, and this gets back to kind of, you know, the idea with, with Peter Thiel is this idea that all value comes from, from secrets, but that's kind of really what, what businesses are in the heart of trying to discover are, are secrets that are themselves valuable. And then if you're not doing that, then you're trying to subtly copy somebody else. And, you know, he kind of, he calls that model globalization. Do so you have globalization or monopolies? The monopolies have the secrets, Otherwise, you're you're copying somebody else, and so I, I was curious from you, just because you've 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 been involved with not only with with businesses and and with really I mean technical businesses, but now you've also explored something creative with writing. And I was really just curious if if seeing into both worlds have have, have if they've given you some kind of unique insight into one world or the other, and maybe the mainstream in that world didn't appreciate. Did you bring a physics to writing? give you an idea that other, other writers didn't have or vice versa, bringing the writing creativity side into the world of physics and of, and of business? Well, I think that, I don't know if, if other people don't know this, but I think one of the things I've learned is that it's, the, well, I guess this is kind of a well-known phenomenon that the, the, the probability of a, uh, of a extraordinary secret being kept is highly unlikely. So it, it's, we have all kinds of conspiracies that, that people talk about, whether it's aliens or um, I know that in, in one of the areas I used to, to work in technically, there were discussions about whether the Soviets had developed some secret way of being able to find our submarines, for example. And the issue is when you, when you, when you drill down into those things, you generally find out that, that for a variety of reasons, if it's utterly earth shattering, the secret won't be kept. Okay. It'll be discovered by someone else or it'll, it'll get leaked one way or the other. So, uh, you know, again, like, you know, we kind of started on that, that big um, box of the, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant being, covenant being shipped into there, you know, right. transported into the, 
the uh, the giant government warehouse. You know, right. the, the chance that something like that, or that the UFO, you know, that the aliens really did uh, land in uh, in uh, uh, where is that place in New Mexico? Roswell. Roswell. Yeah. I mean, the fact that that guy's really there. Right. Probably improbable. Very good. Very good. I think that is a very good answer and definitely one that uh, I think people who are writing, especially if they're writing in, in spies or, you know, thrillers, et cetera, and something to take away that maybe the the story doesn't have to revolve around keeping a secret, but maybe after the stakes of the secret getting out or something like that. And uh, I think that's a really good point that you make and very interesting. I want to make sure we say one more time, just very clearly, everybody go purchase false flags. <laughs> it was a great read. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was an easy read too. Easy read and, and very quick. And I mean, it, you were talking about typesetting earlier. I know one thing Joe and I talked about, having the, the short chapters in the book really makes it read very quickly. And uh, I really like that as well. It made it easy to, you know, I'm going to read a little bit every night. It's easy yeah. to do that when you're making, uh, you know, quick progress through the book. And as you were saying before, I mean, it, it captures two genres, you know, the, the, the crime procedural genre, the, the military genre. So uh, something for everybody, including a little bit of romance, but not, not too much, guys. Not too much. Not no, an embarrassing amount. He's, he's a married man. We don't want to put him on the spot. We don't want to put him on the spot. But uh, no, I just want to say, I mean, Phil, I, we truly appreciate you being here uh, for this. Um, you know, it's an honor for us to talk with you. You've, you've accomplished quite a bit in your life and are accomplishing many more things and we wish you nothing but success with the writing career uh from here on out um if for anybody who was listening like i said check the website check our, our video we'll be including all the links for phil's books and uh where to where to find them and where to buy them yeah this was a this was a great way to spend my saturday afternoon it was a great conversation yeah so there's no college football is there that's <laughs> uh, yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, Phil, I mean, did you want to? We want to give you a chance, obviously, for any any closing thoughts, any any other projects you want to mention, any other uh, things you want to get out, and if not, we'll go ahead and uh, and sign off. No, this is this has been a blast, guys. I I I'm so sick and tired of Zoom conferences. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is the first time I've ever been on a uh, on a potential podcast, so this is really uh, been a delight to spend this time with you. You you guys are as good as Joe Rogan. Well, that's what I can't find myself. I we we couldn't agree more. <laughs> you, you, you didn't you didn't make me light up a joint either. So well, uh, right, right. Well, he is a merry man, everybody, as we've been saying. And, uh, it's all been under the table, so to speak. But uh, no, very good. Well, everybody, I, I I do I feel as I'm sure has plenty to get back to. So we'll go ahead and sign off. And uh, so thank everybody for joining us. Another episode uh, in the works for uh, roses and rhetoric. Thank you for being here with us, Phil. Thank you again for for being here. Pleasure. Thank you. Um, and as always, Jimmy Hackett signing off for my for my co-host Joseph Stanford. Everybody, we'll see you next time. Ciao.